deal with. There may think, be things you want to jettison or jettison for a while in order to be free. Uh, I re always remember uh, Gordon Fee, a New Testament professor of mine, who would say, in Christ we're free, but if you're not free not to, you're not free at all. So it's good to set things down at times. But all of that said, I want to propose that you and I move into this new year very conscious of our worldview. Everyone has a worldview. Most people are utterly unaware what their worldview is. Our worldview is, in effect, the glasses through which we look at the world. Our worldview determines what we see and how we understand what we see. And so to have an unreflective worldview given us by the culture around us, given us by our background, determining how we see life and therefore many choices that we make and hopes that we dare to have is really not very wise. And so I'd encourage you to think together with me this morning about two very different worldviews and how to apply the worldview that of course I'm going to commend because it's the biblical worldview. The first worldview is very familiar to us because we live in the midst of it. If you are a person who loves media and you're constantly absorbing it, constantly checking your iPhone, constantly listening or looking or turning something on to hear what's going on, then you perhaps, even if you consciously have adopted a biblical worldview, are still being massively shaped. We all are, because it's the, it's the air we breathe every day. But we're being shaped by the kind of worldview that is summarized brilliantly by the man that the Old Testament scriptures say was the wisest man who ever lived. Also one of the most powerful, one of the richest. And uh, what was his summary as he grew old after a lifetime of having what most people would dream of having? I mean, we know life can be hard, but don't we all, even those of us who seriously seek the Lord, think that if we just had a lot of wealth, um, everything would be a lot easier. Now, in one sense, of course, it would be. Uh, I think it was Pearl Bailey who used to say, honey, I've been poor and miserable, and I've been rich and miserable, and I'll take rich and miserable any day. <laughs> Realize that. does ease things. But it doesn't answer the great questions of life, and it doesn't keep us from ending up cynics who think that life is meaningless. And so our first lesson is from Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, beginning with verse 1, and we'll simply read the first 11 verses. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities. Now, if you look at your little footnote, you'll see that that word vanity in the Hebrew is hevel, which means a vapor, a mist, something that just blows away. It's meaningless. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. 
The sun rises, the sun goes down, and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. And Solomon will go on to take us through all of the things in which people place their hope, wisdom, wealth, pleasure, and he will resolve in each case that it's meaningless. We'll talk about that in a moment. Now for a very different view. Look at Revelation chapter 21, the opening verses. The Bible opens, as you know, with the words, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. It ends with these words. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be any mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. The word of the Lord. Much easier to say thanks be to God after that one than the previous one. Now we will contrast those two views, but then we will look at what practical application we're to make with it and turn to Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we'll begin reading in verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself 
and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain, for he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. First of all, a worldview that simply looks at this world under the sun. It's a world perspective. He says that. I beheld everything under the sun. So when we just look at this world itself, no matter what benefits we have, no matter how favored we were in our upbringing, our family, our genes, our education, our, our work, the relationships we've had in life, the longer we live and the more open and sensitive we are to the reality of the world around us, the more we realize the weariness of life here if there's no transcendent vision. Every life has its exquisite pleasures and its excruciating pains. And yet, there's nothing new under the sun, is there? Think about Solomon for a moment. Um, he'd have every right to have a kind of a dark view of things. You say, how could someone who was so blessed uh, look at things and, and be such a cynic? Well, think for a moment about his family. He was David's son, one of a whole series of children. And his father, who was the man after God's own heart, the great king, the one who wrote so many beautiful psalms to the Lord, speaking of his, his love of the Lord, his worship of the Lord, and pronouncing and proclaiming his own righteousness before God. David, as he became older, became arrogant, and when the kings went out to war, David stayed home. You remember the story. And David looked and saw a beautiful young woman bathing and wanted her, found out who she was, that she was the daughter of one of his mighty men out there fighting battles for him. She was the wife of another of his mighty men, Uriah. She was the granddaughter of his chief advisor, Ahithophel. But David wanted her and he took her. And then you know the whole sad, tragic story, how he tried to cover up his sin by having her husband killed in battle. And the first she became pregnant, he was trying to cover it. And the first child died, but the second child was Solomon. He knew his own story, the sad, tragic story of his mother's being added to David's harem and being used in this way. 
And then you think about some of his brothers. One of his brothers raped his half-sister. And then another brother, her full brother, killed that brother. I mean, dysfunctional is an inadequate term to describe David's family, the family in which Solomon was raised. This was a crazy bunch of murderous thugs. And also, incredibly, their father was a man after God's own heart. That great mystery, Luther captured it wonderfully in his symbol, Eustace et peccators, at once a saint and a sinner. And that's this darkness that he saw. How am I to believe in the goodness of life when the best man I know did this to my mother and I'm the result? How am I supposed to believe? So Solomon had come to a point where having tasted it all, experienced it all, thousands of concubines, it says, I can't even fathom. And on all these political marriages, the man who at the start showed his wisdom, showed that God was with him by saving the child of a prostitute, ended his days offering up some of his own children to the false gods of the nations whom some of his wives worshipped, offering them as living sacrifices. I mean, this is a view of life lived as simply we, we are the highest of the animals. We can do what we want, whatever we can get away with, but there's nothing new. Those of us who've experienced hard things this past year should realize that the one dumbest thing anybody can ever ask is, why me? Because we've spent our lives seeing all these things happen to other people. So wh- why in the world shouldn't it happen to me? When you and I look at the news, we're not expecting to see there something that we've never seen before. We just want to know who it happened to yesterday. It's going to be war, but where? It's going to be disaster, but where? It's going to be extraordinary wealth and success, but who who reaped the benefits this time? Nothing new under the sun. And that's the summary of a worldview that is simply shaped by what's happening here and now. There's another worldview, one that the Bible calls us to. And John declares it beautifully in this vision that's given him, this apocalyptic vision, in the midst of great suffering as he's on the Isle of Patmos and he's watched the other apostles, the other disciple brothers of his be killed by the power of Rome one after another after another. And he's been exiled to Patmos. He has this vision given him by the Lord of how God is going to deal with human history. And it doesn't end the way that so many of us were taught that it would end, finally getting free of all this and and floating away and, and being spirits in heaven, playing harps, sitting on clouds, or becoming angels. No. It ends with God doing what he set out to do. God will always accomplish what he sets out to do. God set out to make this cosmos. God set out to make us flesh and blood part of this cosmos. 
And the Bible ends by telling us at the end of it all, God is going to do this thing. He will not be thwarted in his purpose. God is going to raise us up from the dead. God is going to bring the new heaven and the new earth down and he will make his home with us. It's not us floating to heaven. It's God coming down and meeting his people and dwelling with us. And Christ has joined himself to us in human flesh eternally, now glorified, and yet it's incomprehensible. And we're being called to live with that view. Now here's the problem. This is where it all can get wrecked. A lot of us who believe that, who live in that hope of what God at last is going to do in consummating history, think that we are simply to muddle through here as best we can, telling as many people as we possibly can about what's going to come. I know it's horrible here. I know there's nothing new under the sun. I know that, uh, you know, all the things that people seek here are worthless and meaningless, but one day, by and by. But that's not what the Bible teaches. That's not what Paul says. Paul says, beginning here and now, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. It started now. You're not waiting for it. People will sometimes say to me, do you think we're in the last days? And I say, of course. According to the New Testament, the last days began when Jesus conquered death and rose from the tomb. Because what we've had is the overlapping of the ages. We have the presence of the future in the people of God. That's why we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the presence of the kingdom, and we're to be God's kingdom people living here and now for the praise of his glory. How do we do that? We do it by doing everything that we do for the glory of God and for the good of those around us. We do it by loving the people he has entrusted to us. By his grace, with self-sacrificial love. Not seeing your children as a source of your pride, people that are to fulfill your dreams, our dreams. Not seeing your spouse as someone who is supposed to give you what only God himself can give. I think more marriages go south because we expect of our spouses to give us what only the Lord can give. And the only way to really have a great marriage is if two people are each pouring out their lives for the other, each for the other. And when the world sees it, they want to know where, where's this music coming from? What is the source of this kind of music? This is how we all wish we could live. This is what we all wish we could experience being loved well by others. How do, you, how do you reach that neighbor that doesn't care about the things of God? How do you reach those people you work with? Not by trying to, to manipulate them into letting you give them a gospel presentation. You do it by the one person that actually listens to them when they speak, who actually cares about what they have to say.
who actually seeks to speak into and act into the places of hurt and pain in their lives simply because they are people made in God's image. And by God's grace, sometimes that breaks open the heart and they want to know, why are you doing this? Why do you love me this way? Why do you care for me like this? Why do you act like this? That's our call. That's supposed to be our worldview. And if it is, and to the degree that it is, and we all, look, I'm up here preaching to myself, believe me. I can lapse really quickly back into just, ah, you know, get me out of here. This thing's too big a mess. But actually, human history is our arena of service, and the service of Christian people is to show that there is another way that leads to life and joy and peace and not to a meaningless end. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Behold, the old is gone. The new has come. Are you still carrying around the guilt for things that you did or the hurt and shame of things done to you? Are you still looking at the gifts that you have or the experience of your family or the place that you are in life and feeling that no matter how many times you promised God that you would do great things for him, it's never going to happen? Do you realize that he never has wanted you or me to be anybody but the person we are with our unique experience, our unique gifts and lack of gifts, our set of friends, our unique areas of brokenness that hopefully make us a little bit endearing <laughs> to those who love us? I mean, you look at your child, do you look at your child and think, you know, if you were just brighter, more gifted, uh, you know, a little bit taller, a little bit strong, I'd, I'd really love you. Of course not. Do we think that God loves us less than that? And so I just ask you finally this morning, have you known that love? Do you know how much he loves you? Do you know that he is more willing to save you than you are for him to save you? He is more willing to fill you with his spirit than you are to be filled. He is more willing to use you. Not in, you know, most of us are never going to be or do the things that we thought we'd do and become the people we thought we'd be. You know, the world can only stand so many superstars. Most of us are called to live. As Paul said, I love it, Paul of all people, twice at least, maybe three times in his letters, said to Christian people undergoing persecution, live quiet lives. Do your work and live quiet lives and love well. That's the, that's the most powerful thing you can do. Oh, I would love to say that to the Christian media. Christian media, lead quiet lives because that's what draws people to him. And if you have not yet known such love 
and such grace. Hear this word. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Father, seek and save you who love us. Seek and save in this place and make all things new by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.